Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, last time, as you might remember, we discussed addiction and how it affects different genders differently. Men and women have a different experience with both addiction and recovering from addiction. And so today we're going to talk about rehab and how that is also different for people. But it's also changed over time, the way that people go to rehab, whether they go to rehab. And nowadays we also have this whole issue of celebrities and celebrity rehab. Yeah, just like I would argue that addiction has become a lot more mainstreamed, I would say that that rehab has also become uh, more of this mainstream thing that it that has a certain cachet to it because of uh, the celebrity um, path of um, addiction and then heading off to a fancy rehab facility in Malibu. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about how everything got started in the U- U.S which really starts with women who led the temperance movement in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Yeah, they're starting PTAs. They're sending people to rehab. What didn't they do? Well, uh, (laughs) drink, drink (laughs) alcohol. That's one thing they, they did not do. Yeah, the temperance movement of the 19th and early 20th centuries gave rise to sober houses, which... This is not to be confused with the reality show Sober House, which I had no idea existed, but it, apparently it is one of the celebrity rehab shows. Um, and these were run by religious groups like the YMCA, the YWCA, and Salvation Army. And these were basically alcohol and drug-free living environments run by landlords who had strong personal convictions about sobriety. So there was no getting drunk at these places. No boozing. Because with rehab, especially when it comes to, well, drugs, obviously, as well, but with alcohol, too, the main goal of it is total abstinence mm-hmm. from whatever substance landed you um, in that facility. And, of course, the temperance movement was pretty successful since it coalesced in 1920 with the passage of uh, Prohibition. Mm-hmm. They got everybody to just quit drinking or just go to speakeasies. <laughs> wink, wink. Yes. And it lasted for 13 bathtub gin-soaked years <laughs> until people were like, wait, we're still drinking. Yeah. Oh, whoops. We're still doing this, yeah. In the early 20th century, Alcoholics Anonymous got its start. Uh, AA had its origins in the Oxford Group, which was a religious movement that emphasized self-improvement. And so there's a lot of interesting history behind that. And so that was one of the very first sort of self-help group therapy type rehab scenarios. And actual rehab clinics, as we think of them, started springing up as medical professionals got more involved in the process. And two of the things that had a lot to do with this were Nixon's War on Drugs, which he declared in 1971, and Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign, which launched in 1984. Yeah, it wasn't really until the 1980s that we had a shift in perception of addiction from a moral failing or a weakness of will to an actual disease. Because if you think about um, AA, which started up 
in the early 20th century. This was when doctors were first starting to think that there was some kind of health-related cause. And actually, uh, Dr. William Silkworth, who treated AA co-founder William Wilson, was the first doctor to treat an alcoholic based on the idea, kind of an ir- erroneous idea, but nevertheless, the idea that they suffered from an inbred allergy to alcohol. Um, so then it took until the 1980s for us to really accept this, um, accept addiction as a, as a health problem, as a mental health problem, a physical problem that needed to be treated, not the, a lack of character. Right. Exactly. And one person who brought a lot of attention to this was uh, Betty Ford, former first lady. She had struggled with addictions to alcohol and prescription painkillers. And in 1982, she opened the Betty Ford Center in California. And half of their space is dedicated to women and half to men because they really do focus on the idea that men and women have different experiences with addiction and with recovery and rehab. And so there's been a lot of writing about her contribution because, you know, not only did the fact that she opened this clinic help people, but the fact that she was willing, as such a public figure, was willing to be open with her own experiences, sort of paved the way for other people to come forward and seek help. Well, if you read interviews with Betty Ford about um, her her addiction, she had, you know, for a while she was sort of tricking herself by saying, you know, I'm getting up in the morning, I'm showering, I look nice, I'm not on the street, my life is not falling apart. And finally, it took a family intervention because from outside appearances, she, you know, she was not a drunkard or a dipsomaniac, as uh, alcoholics used to be referred to in ye old days. Um, and and so it, it really did change um, the culture of how we think about addiction and what addiction looks like. And Dr. Michael Brodsky, who's the medical director of Bridges to Recovery and a psychiatry faculty member at UCLA, wrote an editorial for Internal Medicine News about Betty Ford and her contributions to this field. And one thing that he points out is that it really changed some perceptions. And he said that the stream of Hollywood celebrities seeking treatment at the Betty Ford Center further legitimized the disease model of drug abuse and the need for humane, respectful treatment settings. So now we have more people, more famous people starting to come forward, and there's this talk of this disease model. Well, and on the one hand, you could see that as a positive thing because it takes, um, it seems like it took famous names for us to to, to kind of get away from the shame of seeking treatment and help when you really need it. But now it seems like we've gone to the other side of it where it's sort of a festering problem, only promoting yeah. addiction and recovery. And so much to the point that we enjoy watching people experience withdrawal yeah. on shows like reality shows like uh, Sober House and uh, Dr. Drew. Yeah, my roommate watches Intervention all the time. I, just, I, it, 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 I, I, don't I can't know. do it. I don't want to. I don't want to watch it. Yeah. I feel I feel like I don't know. I don't know why this is part of the public. I don't know, TV show watching habits. Well, maybe because it, uh, you know, because it establishes that, what is it, the fourth wall between the viewer and whatever is on screen. And maybe it creates some kind of distance between you and someone else's terrible problem. Maybe by comparison makes things 
seem better in your life. I don't. I, well, yeah, because like know. we talked about in the last podcast, I mean, my addictions of eating hair and collecting troll dolls yes. seem tame in comparison to heroin. Right. Still a joke. It's troll still... dolls don't require. <laughs> they don't require methadone. Um, <laughs> but we've talked a lot about this this idea of cultural perceptions changing and psychologist and addiction expert Stanton Peel um, wrote more about this in depth in the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences in 1990 and he talks about the evolution of the modern idea of addiction as an uncontrollable disease um, which first appeared in relation to alcohol. Yeah, it had originally been seen as a vice or a lack of self-control. Basically, you're not good at being a person. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it has evolved into this idea that it's not your fault. You're, you're kind of prone to having this problem, um, that it is a disease to fight. And so he, he does. He talks about the evolution of all of that and the idea that, like Kristen mentioned earlier, uh, if you, if you want to quit something, alcohol, drugs, whatever, you have to completely abstain. And he sort of discusses the idea that, well, maybe not. I mean, maybe you could still have success with someone if they just moderately drink. Mm-hmm. Or if, if it's not, he argues that if it's not interfering with their life, if they're still able to be a functional human being on all levels, maybe it's better to have someone drink moderately or use heroin, for example, once a month instead of totally cutting them off and having them possibly relapse. Wait, you just recommended maybe using heroin once a month? <laughs> Okay, no disclaimer. I do not think anyone should use heroin. But you I mean, but in terms of the the moderate drinking versus abstaining, if we're talking just about alcohol, that is one reason why not everybody is on board with Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step system because it's 12 steps towards complete abstinence rather than moderation. And with that, there are still some of those strands of viewing alcohol and alcoholism as a vice and sort of the, an internal failing. You know, that's one reason why uh, the serenity prayer comes up in mm-hmm. AA that uh, starts off with, uh, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. And right. it's, you're, you're acknowledging the fact that you are too weak-willed. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everyone agrees with, with that kind of model, which is why there are multiple models of uh, recovery. Yeah, and the CDC talks about different types of treatment that people can seek for addiction. Those include detox programs, which are an essential first step that helps wean drug users off of their immediate physical dependence. We have residential treatment, which can be long or short term. Therapeutic communities, which are highly structured peer-based residential treatment programs that can last 18 months and are designed to help people basically alter and relearn behaviors. There's outpatient treatment, which is one of the most common treatments and is uh, the least restrictive form. And it it really works best for people who already have a strong social or family network. And then there's medication-assisted treatment for patients who receive medications to block the effects of whatever substance they are using, such as methadone for heroin. And there are a lot of people in the United States uh, who take advantage of all of these treatments. According to the CDC, about 3 million people per year in the U.S. receive alcohol or substance abuse treatment. But that is not the entire population that needs 
servicing because they estimate that 13 to 16 million people compared to just the 3 million people who are getting the service could benefit from that. Uh, the 2007 National Survey on Drug Use and Health sponsored by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration estimated that 23.2 million people or 9.4% of the U.S. population ages 12 or older needed treatment for drug or alcohol use problems. Hmm. That's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. Um, but, you know, it does seem like there's a, there's a gap between the, the services provided and those being taken advantage of, either because of access or, um, barriers such as income, um, Right. Yeah, there are there are several barriers that a lot of these articles talk about. This is from uh, the American Journal of Drug and Alcohol Abuse in 2003, which talked about barriers that people face, particularly women, to seeking help. And a lot of that is social stigma, which we talked about in our last podcast on addiction, that, that there is a different perception of women who are addicted to either alcohol or drugs. Um, labeling and guilt. Women have a responsibility for children most of the time, and they found that co-ed treatment options, when men and women are both either in the same facility or in therapy together, those options are less able to attract and retain vulnerable groups of women, such as lesbians, women with a history of abuse, and those who have worked as prostitutes. They found that these people are more likely to be not necessarily ostracized from their therapy groups, but just not receiving the type of attention and treatment they need. And there could be um, barriers at the outset to finding treatment. Um, according to research from Carla A. Green, who is a senior investigator at the Center for Health Research with Kaiser Permanente Northwest, she found that um, some of the barriers that women encounter to seeking treatment is that they tend to go directly for mental health or primary care facilities rather than heading into specialized rehab programs, which might have something to do with the, the kind of stigma that you're talking about. But the thing is, when they do get into the kind of specified care that they need, women do tend to recover with higher success rates than men, according to this one study, because there have been other studies looking at the gender differences of recovery rates. And some say that there is no statistical no statistically significant um, difference in how men and women respond to rehab and others say women do better, men do better. Yeah. yeah. And in that 2003 study, Caroline, that you just mentioned, um, the researchers identified six components that can make a bigger difference to help guarantee that women's needs for drug and alcohol abuse recovery are met. Right. Uh, the researchers reviewed 38 separate studies and found positive associations between these six components and basically the success that women had in rehab programs. And those components are child care, prenatal care, women-only programs, that, that, like we just touched on, uh, supplemental services and workshops that, addressed wim- that address women-focused topics, mental health programming, and comprehensive programming. So they found that when those things were involved in women's recovery, they were more successful. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned this in the, the last episode as well. The, uh, the Harvard Mental Health Letter also suggests that cognitive behavioral therapy is especially helpful for women overcoming addiction um, since we are more provoked to abuse substances, 
due to environmental cues and stressors, and that kind of cognitive behavioral therapy can teach us how to better manage those those impulses. Right, and this enhanced therapy is an idea that's talked about in a 1998 study in the journal Addiction. They compared standard outpatient groups of people who were going through therapy with enhanced groups, and that included... Uh, pre-contracted medical screenings, housing assistance, parenting classes, and employment services. And not surprisingly, patients in these enhanced groups showed significantly less substance abuse, fewer physical and mental health problems, and better social function at six months than the people in the control groups. But then again, there's the, the question that comes up of actually getting those populations into treatment. And mm-hmm. again, this is... Um, possibly more challenging for women with substance abuse problems, according to a study from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, which found that men are more often referred to treatment by employers through the criminal justice system and by their families. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, women obviously less likely to be referred through the criminal justice system but when you take out the men, the male admissions from the criminal justice system, the number of men and women who are referred are about the same um, when when that is taken into account. So once people uh, overcome these barriers to treatment and get involved with something like a 12-step program or an inpatient or an outpatient community, does rehab work? And the answer is yes, uh, with a combination of treatments, especially. And when the goal is abstinence, complete abstinence, uh, the the rates of success are higher, probably because you eliminate temptation for abuse. If you are abstaining completely from alcohol, then there's not the chance, for instance, that uh, that one beer could turn into an entire bottle of whiskey. So um, for an idea of, of how well rehab works, there was, uh, it's a little bit dated, but a 1994 study called the Target Cities Project, which showed that people who had completed a drug dependency treatment program, attended a 12-step program once a week, such as AA, or had counseling session once a week, had an 87% chance of abstinence six months after complete, completement of treatment. Completement of treatment rhymes too. Um, and there was another study that found that someone who attended uh, four or more 12-step sessions and one more individual counseling session per month compared to a person um, who was not doing those things has a 40% less chance of relapse. So all these kinds of check-ins with different people holding um, yourself accountable certainly has an impact on whether or not you're going to relapse. And um, when it comes to actually going to a rehab facility, like we see a lot of times with celebrities, three months is the minimum recommended stay there. Hmm. What do we know what the average stay is? If three months, I wonder how, I wonder how long people typically stay, especially if you're a celebrity. I feel like they never stay that long. Well, and especially if you're in a place like Crossroads in Antigua, West Indies, which was founded by Eric Clapton and cost $15,000 a month. Well, see, I would have the opposite problem because then I would just never leave. I know. I mean, I wouldn't be able to, well, this is very insensitive to say, but I wouldn't be able to drink anymore. But I'd be in the Bahamas or wherever. Well, see, that's the interesting thing. If we look at this history of rehab and, you know, in American culture, it starts out as this tirade against drunkards on the street as sort of this like low class thing and all these people who have this moral failing. And now today we associate it with 
Tropical Getaways, hosted by Eric Clapton. <laughs> that sounds that sounds pretty cool, actually. I know. Not to say that you know riding the heroin train is the best way to get to the West Indies, no. but I do. But it does seem. But it does seem strange that we've come that we now see uh, see rehab as as something associated with I don't know wealthier people. Well, uh, Tony Bivacqua who is a life coach at Summit Malibu Drug Rehab, uh, he, he kind of points to this whole thing of watch out when your patients really identify with celebrities because they're going to think that they, they should go on a tropical island rehab vacation as well. He wrote uh, a column for Addiction Professional Magazine in 2009 and said that the hype that surrounds celebrity addiction is a burden for addiction professionals such as him. He said that celebrity addiction culture fosters the illusion that bad behavior is acceptable if done by talented, creative people. He it, it equates addiction treatment with what celebrities receive. This whole idea that, you know, I'm, I'm worshiping this celebrity. They're going to rehab. How bad can it be? How mm-hmm. bad can the whole experience be? So the, this whole like promises Malibu type thing is, is definitely a far cry from residential programming that most average people would receive. And it really highlights the disease model of addiction and ignores the psychology of these famous people, which he says is different from you and I. What's underlying all of the the drug or alcohol abuse? Right. Um, well, and also, you know, I should point out, too, that while, yes, if you head off to, to Crossroads in Antigua, and that, that's you're going to have to shell out a lot of money, but for outpatient non-methadone treatment for, say, you or I, Caroline, the costs really are much lower, um, usually around 25 to $30 per visit. Um, but again, there's just that, that, that huge gap between the public perception of what it is as some like hugely expensive, almost exotic thing, you know, versus the reality for most of those, what was the number? 13 million Americans in the U.S., according to the CDC, that could use some kind of rehab treatment. And Christine Rosen, writing in Humanities Magazine in February 2011, um, kind of points out how, on the one hand, um, it, it's great that addiction and recovery has been destigmatized in a lot of ways, um, but there are also some problems that have come up with that. She says that recovery from addiction is today viewed less as an embarrassing common problem than an individual journey, in part because of AA's success in destigmatizing alcoholism. Recovery from addiction is so acceptable that it has become a cultural commodity that can be parlayed into an equally addictive kind of pseudo-celebrity on television and in print. So we're getting a fix off of the cycle of addiction and recovery that some celebrities are going through, such as Lindsay Lohan or Charlie Sheen, watching those kind of meltdowns. Yeah, well, and he parlayed his into a tour. Absolutely. So not everybody, not everybody is that successful with their addiction. But yeah, we're, this whole TV culture of addiction, uh, that we're so obsessed with, it really, it's, it's building an expectation. And that is, we're expecting, you know, the, the dramatic fall. And then they, they admit to their problems and they ask for forgiveness. They seek help and they get better. And in some cases, it keeps going up and down. But um, yeah, people like David Duchovny and Tiger Woods, who not drug addiction, but sex addiction mm-hmm. for these folks. You know, it's like we feel now that we have a right to not only be involved in their problems, but to be apologized to. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and once, the thing is, too, we expect an apology. And I say we as <laughs> you and me, Caroline. <laughs> no, we as the, speaking for the, the general public, it seems like people, yes, enjoy and want some kind of apology. If only just see them in that moment of... Uh, ultimate humility, but also, and her more humiliation than humility, perhaps, but also once they are on the road to recovery, we get bored. We yeah. don't want to see that. We don't, I mean, is clean living house with no problems a hit reality show? I think that's called HGTV. Is like, I enjoy going to the farmer's market on Monday afternoons after yoga. A reality show, because that's what I did. That's your life. That's your reality show, Kristen. And don't you feel bad about it. I won't. But uh, Meyer Roshan at thefix.com, he was talking about this whole celebrity rehab culture thing. And he was saying that, you know, when, when some celebrities struggle with issues, health issues... It actually brings beneficial attention, such as he cites uh, Michael J. Fox suffering from Parkinson's and how that brought so much attention. And then uh, Magic Johnson suffering from HIV, his battle with that disease. That brings positive attention to some of these issues. But he he says that it's this whole drug and alcohol culture is bringing sort of maybe a bad change mm-hmm. in perception and he really criticizes the reporters who were focusing on Whitney Houston's death for instance because instead of focusing their attention on pharmaceutical companies or addiction issues we're just writing about Whitney Houston and other celebrities like I mean we're just focusing on the drama and the gory mm-hmm. details of their death instead of the actual problems that she Whitney Houston and millions of regular people face. Well, you could bring it by comparison, the whole uh, trial of Michael Jackson's doctor mm-hmm. and how that just turned into, you know, another another spectacle that I don't know that people really learned from in terms of the dangers of abusing pharmaceuticals. Right. So we could go on <laughs> and on. Um, but uh, but the history of rehab is some interesting stuff. And if we move away from celebrity culture into the day to day types of treatments that people all around us are dealing with, um, I think it's it's good that this destigmatize destigmatization. That is a tricky word to say sometimes For real? the destigmatization has happened and those resources are more available and the community is paying more attention to specific needs that um, women have mm-hmm. and how to treat that. Um, and it, I just, I, I wish that we could, we could move away from this voyeuristic obsession with the, the downfall really of celebrities yeah. um, and, and focus more on what, what Betty Ford would have wanted, you know, which is actually helping people, Recover. Right. So. WWBFD. Yeah. Put that on a bracelet. Yeah. What, what would what would old bets do? So send us your thoughts on rehab addiction. What do you, what do you, I mean, do you watch Intervention? Does it make your skin crawl? Sober House? These kinds of reality shows. Uh, do you think that they are helpful or and possibly offering scare tactics to younger people watching them to, to not say no to drugs? To, I mean, say no to drugs, not not say <laughs> no to drugs. <laughs> Send us an email that will hopefully be more eloquent than what I just said there. <laughs> Mom stuff at Discovery is where you can address it. And we've got an email here from Adriana on our episode about sex ed. And she's writing about sex education for homosexual teens. 
She writes, uh, Growing up, my sex education in both school and home was quite thorough. Abstinence was the main focus, but we were also taught how to use and obtain all sorts of birth control and STD protection. Not once, though, was homosexuality mentioned. Ever. Imagine my embarrassment when it came time to talk about sex with my long-term partner, and neither of us really know the first thing about what gay sex is like or how to use protection. We had to resort to less savory research methods, all hail the internet, and are still figuring it out despite being in our mid-twenties. I just hope that someday our education system will become less homophobic and work harder to educate all sexualities. You and me both, Adriana. Yeah. This email is from Sarah. It's The subject line is, The Talk... When your mom is a teacher. Yeah, let's roll. Uh, She says, my mom is a teacher and taught preschool from the time I was a baby until I was into my teenage years. Her students would always come to her with questions, and she made sure that I always knew the answers to the questions her kids were asking. As a result, I had a series of talks starting when I was maybe three years old. The first was the penises and vaginas talk, which then slowly progressed into explaining the mechanics of sex. I had a pretty good working knowledge of how babies were made by the time I was five or six. However, she never covered issues of consent or birth control, probably because her students were too young to even have a concept of these things. I did learn about condoms and the like, though, thanks to my older sister's stash of teen magazines. The best was the now-defunct YM. They had a regular sex column that was not only sex-positive, but covered issues of defining consent, what works as birth control. Apparently, a lot of teens in the late 90s thought that underwear was good birth control. Who knew? Masturbation and even the occasional question about homosexuality. It was a great resource and gave me way more information than school sex ed ever did. For anyone looking to have the talk, I would highly recommend Lacey Green and her YouTube show, Sex Plus. That's a plus sign. She's a professional sex educator and focuses a lot on myths about sexuality. Her videos are short, funny, and incredibly informative. Even though, at 23, I'm older than her target audience, I still watch her weekly updates and learn something new each time. So thanks, Sarah. Yes, and thanks to everyone who's written in. Mom Stuff at Discovery dot com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about rehab, I highly recommend you read How Rehab Works by the famous Josh Clark of Stuff You Should Know. And you can find it over at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?